for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. And I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Keeping that in mind, let's turn forward then to uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25 and leading into this uh, most familiar parable. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, then I will return and I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. I'll end our reading, Luke, there. In in recent years, uh, one of the most common things to see while you're driving uh, is billboards for law firms. I don't see them as much around here as some places. In, in Florida, it's like every uh, quarter mile, uh, there's, there's one. But um, I saw one a while back in, in the Carolinas. The, the lawyer with his picture was Larry Archie, it said. And uh, his message, the only message on the billboard was, just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. <laughs> and then had his, his phone number. Um, obviously playing on the sinful human tendency to justify ourselves, 
right? Even when we're wrong, to minimize it, to um, try to get away with things, to twist the meaning of words or circumstances or rules, um, to get out of consequences. And it's no secret people use lawyers to do that. Um, it, it's just not so often blatantly advertised uh, like that. Uh, but in our, our text here in Luke chapter 10, a lawyer uh, does just this in part. Uh, Luke reveals his motives to us. He was, verse 29, he wished to justify himself. Uh, he, was, he was trying to justify himself um, by limiting and, and by softening God's law, essentially. Uh, we all have the tendency to do that uh, at times and in various ways. The scriptures are clear that when we do that, it, it shrinks and redefines the character of God himself uh, in his own holiness. It minimizes our sin and ultimately it, it cheapens and minimizes the enormity of God's grace and mercy to us uh, if we shrink his His law and his holiness. Um, and so Jesus challenges this lawyer here to think more deeply about God's law and his holiness. And, and so the lawyer's need for grace. Uh, that's really what I want you to see in this story. What really is the main point here? Um, probably along with the parable of the prodigal son, this is the most famous parable in the Bible. Um, you know, the, the phrase, a good Samaritan, is, is well known and used just widely in pop culture. Um, and most people know the story and uh, maybe think they know the, the main point. It's a popular children's story as well in, in children's Bibles and so on. The point is the same there. Be, be kind and helpful to other people, right? Especially those who are, are different than you, maybe. And if you, if you see the, the children's bulletin today, that's kind of the, the direction that it goes in as well. And, and certainly this parable gives us an example of extraordinary love. Uh, an example to follow, but that's secondary to this passage. Uh, it's, it's not the main point uh, that Jesus is giving to the lawyer or, or for us. The story begins, maybe sometimes we forget, and it's often left out of uh, recounting of it, with verse 25 with this question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that begins this passage. And the story throughout is Jesus' challenge to this man to see his sin and his failure, his, his need for God's lavish and gracious love. That's, that's the point. And I, I want you to be challenged in the same way then this morning, to think deeply and broadly and carefully about God's righteousness so that you would better see your need for grace and, and understand how great, great his grace is. And, and secondarily, of course, uh, also that you'd be able to uh, pursue living out that grace, even particularly in, in following the example of, of love that's here. Okay? So looking at number one on your outline, let's consider this first question that's asked. He, he asks Jesus, putting him to the test, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, and he's called a lawyer, um, not because he went to Yale and passed the bar or anything. He, he's, a, he's an expert in the Torah and in the law of God. Um, and also particularly in, in the tradition of the Jews, which was treated like law in many ways. Likely this is a, a Pharisee. And he says he's putting Jesus to the test. And so this, once again, isn't a curious question. It's not a humble question. Um, he's not really seeking to learn. Later again, Luke will reveal his motives. He's, he's trying to justify himself as well as test Jesus. And yet it's a good question. 
All right, it's an essential question. It's an essential question for, for every one of us. How do we obtain eternal life, life with God? And Jesus responds, verse 26, uh, again, as he often does, without a direct answer, but with a question. Uh, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Jesus knows the man's motive, uh, evidently, his desire to justify himself. He answers really the same way he answered the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came with the same question. How do I get eternal life? What do I have to do? And Jesus points into the law. If, if you want to know what you have to do, well, what is God's standard for doing? Right? What does your Bible say? What, what's God's law? What would you have to do to be right with God? And the man answers in verse 27 with, with the great summaries, the great two summaries of the two halves of God's law from the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's a good answer. And Jesus affirms his answer. Verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, before we look at the lawyer's next question, just... Pause here and understand what Jesus has affirmed and, and maybe what the lawyer should have thought, what he should have said next. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, the love your Lord your God with all your heart and, and so on. Uh, that passage is all about total devotion to God in every aspect of life, every, every aspect of thinking and doing. Um, those, the, the heart, strength, mind, and so on is, is not neatly divided categories of things that, that add up to something precise. It's, it's just pointing to absolutely everything with your emotions, your motivations, your thoughts, your decisions, your very consciousness, all of it in, in absolute, total, pervasive, perpetual, pure love of God it is, the, is the idea and the standard there. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Think about what that means. Uh, your, your love for yourself is constant and attentive and active, and it's natural to you. Uh, it's, it's an incredible standard. And this is God's requirement. This is God's standard for enjoying community, uh, communion with him or, or life or justification, to have right standing with God. That's, that's the standard. To be right with our holy, perfect God requires nothing less than perfect devotion and love. For God, that, that then works out in, in perfectly selfless love for others. That's God's standard. And of course, none of us can keep that standard. Uh, and so, what, what should have been the response of, of this man or the rich young ruler? He said, should have said something like, Lord, I, I do love God. I, I try to love others. But I've, I've failed in that every day. I'm guilty. How can I have that holiness? How can I be right with God? How can I be forgiven? Um, it should have sounded as if Jesus was affirming that what he had to do was to fly to the moon or, or turn a rock into bread or something like that. It's, it's impossible in his own. He hasn't done it. But what was his response? Looking at number two on your outline. Uh, Luke reveals the man's motive here even more clearly. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He asked this question trying to justify himself. He's, he's trying to fit himself as he is into God's requirement for love. Perfect love of God and perfect love of neighbor. Um, it's interesting he skips the first part. 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, strength, and mind. Uh, maybe he thought he's probably a Pharisee. He probably followed all of the, out, the, the traditions of the elders. He um, fasted twice a week. He tithed all of his herbs and every penny and, and took his sacrifices to the temple and so on. So maybe he thinks, well, the God part, check, I've done all that. But who is my neighbor? He, he tests Jesus further on the other part. What, what is Jesus' definition of, of neighbor? Ser- clearly, the man has some kind of uh, understanding that there's a severe limit to that requirement. It, it's not absolute. Right? And so where does Jesus draw that line? Uh, who are we talking about, Jesus? How many people? Really what he's asking is, who can I exclude? Right? Who does this not count for? Um, maybe it's just my immediate family. Uh, maybe it's my tribe, uh, something like that. He wanted to limit and define and restrict uh, God's law, make it achievable, make it outwardly measurable for him. Uh, he didn't want conviction or obligation to respond or change. He wanted to justify himself. And of course, we understand even if, even if this command of God, love your neighbor as yourself, was severely limited in some way, Uh, certainly he's still woefully misguided about what perfect love is, what it looks like. He hasn't, you haven't, I haven't loved even even our family, even those that we love most dearly uh, in that way, in a way that meets God's standard. But he's looking for a minimum requirement. Jesus is pointing to maximum absolute devotion to to God, as we'll see. So instead of answering directly again, uh, Jesus tells this parable. To correct his question, really, and to correct his perspective. So let's look thirdly under number three on your outline at, at this parable. Verse 30, there's a, there's a Jewish man going from Jerusalem uh, down to Jericho. And it is down. We just talked about this a few weeks ago because Jesus came up from Jericho to Jerusalem to the triumphal entry and where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jerusalem is, is uh, 2,600 feet above sea level. Jericho is 800 or so feet below sea level. So it's a downhill walk, but it's about 17, uh, 17 miles, and it's uh, apparently a notoriously dangerous walk in the ancient, ancient world, um, past lots of rocky areas and caves. There's uh, lots of places for bad guys to hide, and so this is the setting Jesus chooses. And, and robbers come along. And beat him and strip him and, and take his things. And uh, Jesus says he was left half dead, uh, is how it's described. Probably looking like he's dead uh, there. Um, but verse 31, the story turns hopeful immediately. There's a priest coming along, um, uh, going down on that road. Uh, the priest is a, a servant of God, he's a servant at the temple. Um, Represented uh, should represent the, the peak of piety in Israel. He's likely coming from he's coming from Jerusalem, uh, likely coming from worship, coming from the temple there, serving there. There were priests that lived all over Palestine, and they had to um, do a, a two-week uh, stint of service each year uh, at Jerusalem. So maybe expected to be understood that he's coming from serving his two weeks in the temple. Um, he, the, the priests were not just Levites, but they were from the family of Aaron. Uh, they were sort of extra special Levites. They were often, uh, oftenly had some wealth. He's probably traveling with an animal. 
Um, some ancient commentators told us, tell us this, this journey wouldn't be done without an animal. So there's plenty of help coming. Surely help is coming. But verse 31, of course, goes on. As When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And then verse 32, well, there's, there's another opportunity for help. Likewise, a Levite also. The Levite's also coming from Jerusalem. He also serves at the temple in different ways. Uh, but the same conclusion is there. He came to the place and saw him, saw the half-dead guy. He passed by on the other side. They crossed the road to avoid even going near him. So it's clear so far in Jesus' parable that, that these two guys were not neighbors to the man who is desperately in need of their help. Oh, why not? What, you know, what, what reason might we, might we put uh, on them for not stopping to help? What, what might Jesus... I was to think, well, he doesn't, he doesn't say, but we might guess a number of things, a number of ways these guys justified crossing the road and quickly passing on. They may have been concerned about ritual cleanness, right? It was part of God's lot. If you, if you handle, if you touch a dead body, which of course was necessary many times, um, but if you do that, you had to, as part of God's teaching his people about holiness and cleanliness, um, you had to go through a week of purification. They'd have to go back to the temple uh, for a week uh, and go through this process. It'd be uh, super inconvenient, uh, in other words. Um, it, it may be just fear of uh, lingering in this area if they stop to help. Obviously, there are bad and dangerous people in the rocks around here. Uh, and, and if we take the time to stop and help, we're putting ourselves at danger. Uh, maybe they're they're running late. Uh, maybe they assume someone else would help. Uh, maybe the guy's got friends in the area and they they ran for fear they'll be back to help him. Uh, somebody else will will come and help. Whatever the reason is, the the priest and the Levite sort of embody the attitude of the lawyer that's that's speaking with Jesus, right? Seeking to justify himself in some way. Whatever it is, they've justified to themselves quickly passing on and not even checking. On this guy, um, stories and, and parables and fables, whether in the Bible or out, often set up predictable patterns. Groups of three or or four, and you sort of expect um, what's coming at the end. Think of a couple of familiar stories that work that way. So Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Um, you know, Goldilocks tries the porridge that's too hot, and then one's too cold. And you know what to expect in the third one, right? At the end of the set, it's, it's just right. Or the bed is too firm, it's too soft, and then it's just right. Or there's the uh, the story of the the Billy Goat's Gruff, right? There's a little one that comes along, and then a medium-sized one, and then you know you expect the big one, right? And so this this parable, something a parable like this, um, it, it's not unlikely that someone might. Uh, someone reading this in the first century or hearing this in the first century would would have an expectation of the third category coming along. There's a priest and a Levite. You know, there's a lot of jokes that start like that too. With you know, this guy, this guy, and this guy. Um, the priest and a Levite, and then there's one other category of person who serves at the temple. There there are lay people that serve at the temple, and so it might be expected that that's the person that's going to come along and help. And the point of the story might be. You know, sort of against the official leadership and praising, you know, unseen kindness from, you know, the average, the average layperson. But shockingly, 
the person that comes along is a Samaritan. A Samaritan who had nothing to do with the temple. In fact, the Samaritans rejected the whole temple and and Jerusalem altogether. And the Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Uh, And they were, the Samaritans were legitimately, in some sense, apostate heretics in that they rejected uh, the temple and the priesthood and, and the true worship of God there in Jerusalem. And they were related to the Jews, but not fully Jewish. Um, and so there was a racial component, a racial uh, aspect to this hatred, and they were just generally enemies with each other. Uh, the, the Mishnah tells us uh, among rules that the, the Jewish tradition had to eat with a Samaritan in the first century was was like eating pork, right? which was... Uh, which was against God's law. Eating with Samaritans was not, but they thought of it in that way. It was disgusting and, and abominable to them. Uh, just to put this in, in maybe modern terms, you know, imagine someone half dead, desperately in need on the side of a road, and and here comes a congressman. You know, think of your favorite congressman if, if you have such a thing. Um, <laughs> You know, here's someone who's given their life to public service, right? Probably someone of some wealth, uh, ability to help, and they pass by. And then maybe along comes some famous pastor. Surely surely he'll help, right? And, and he passes by. Um, and then instead of maybe you expect the story to end with a poor person or a child or someone to come along and, and, and they help. But instead it's a, it's a, a Taliban jihadi. Who comes and helps? That, that's kind of the the sense of how this story, uh, where this story goes. And so, in, in verse thirty three and thirty four, it describes how he helps. Says he had compassion on him. You also you almost get the sense that the the priest and the the Levite just quickly passed by, justifying in their minds somehow, and that the Samaritan could not pass by. He had compassion on him. He, he couldn't have walked by. Uh, he, he gives him oil and, and wine, his own provisions for his trip, for his journey. Now he has less. Maybe he's used them up. Uh, he bandages him up, it says. It's, it's not unlikely that this Samaritan is, is tearing his own clothes to, to bandage up the, the naked, half-dead Jewish guy. Um, and then he uses his animal. Now the Samaritan is going to walk. Uh, and he, he puts him on his animal He's risking his safety in a couple ways, too. He's, he's now lingering in this dangerous area and going slower. Um, he's also entering a, a Jewish town. He's, he's going to walk out and enter a Jewish town with a half-dead Jew on the back of his donkey. And, and one commentator uh, challenged us to consider what that might be like. He says, imagine a, 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 in, you know, early 19th century Wild West, an Indian finds a cowboy with two arrows in his back, lying face down in the dirt. And he puts the cowboy, wanting to help, puts the cowboy over his horse and strolls into Dodge. You know, think what that looks like. He, the Indian might be shot without any questions, right? Or, or even no matter what he, what he says about the scene. Um, so he risks his own safety in, in a number of ways. He takes him to an inn. Verse 35, he, he pays for his lodging. This, this money is maybe about two weeks or so of, of lodging, but he also promises to return and to pay whatever other expenses there are. Um, a blank check, essentially. So this is what's done for him. And again, this parable is often read as 
A nice guy helps someone in need. Right? And it's a nice example of that. That dramatically sells short the incredible, unexpected, dangerous, costly love that's, that's really pictured here in this parable. And Jesus concludes then in, in verse 36, having made the answer uh, overwhelmingly clear, uh, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? He gives this lawyer a kindergarten level question that he's not going to be able to dodge um, or, or get out of. And he answers the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Well, two things I want, I want to observe about Jesus' response, uh, the response here. Uh, first, again, Jesus doesn't directly answer the man's question, who is my neighbor? He, he redirects it. The man's asking, who is my neighbor? Again, in the sense of how can I limit this, right? Who is not my neighbor? Um, trying to justify himself, who is not included? And Jesus essentially asks him with this parable, are you being a neighbor? Right? Are you being a neighbor? What's the measure of your love? The sort of love that God demands is, is such that if you're restricting the force of God's law, if you're conforming it to your life and your behavior and your feelings and your preferences, then even someone like a hated, dirty Samaritan might be closer to obedience to God, Mr. Lawyer, uh, closer to eternal life than you are. That's part of the sharp challenge that Jesus gives it to gives to him. Uh, could it be that a, a Taliban jihadi is closer to the kingdom of God than some Americans who call themselves Christians? That's really the the challenge, the conclusion. And secondly, the the lawyer is supposed to see in this parable that he can't keep this standard. Right? The point of the parable is you cannot justify yourself. It's, it's a good ideal to strive for by, by God's grace. But, but you, Mr. Lawyer, have not loved anywhere near to God's standard. And, and therein, as a helpless, unloving, guilty sinner, who was, he, he was to see his need for Jesus' ministry. What Jesus was offering. It's not just... He's not just intended to, as this story is often presented, just to walk away with a nice moral lesson now. You know, be nice to people, even people who aren't like you. That, that's not the point. He, he's to see his need, his desperate need that for Jesus who came to save the lost, who came to save people from their sins and grant forgiveness and, and reconcile people to God. And that's an important function of God's law. One of the important functions of, of God's law, it shows us our sin. And it shows us our inability. It shows us how far, fall, how, how far we fall short. Um, God's law cannot make you holy. It's, it's good and right, and we uh, are called to follow it and grow in it. But it cannot make you holy. It's, it's like a mirror. Right? God's law is like a mirror. It, a mirror can't make you beautiful. It can only show you your flaws. And the lawyer... Is, it's as if he's looking at a fogged up mirror, not looking at it earnestly or clearly. It's, he's seeing it vaguely or just surface level. And Jesus tells, tells this parable to clean up his mirror, right? to show him the depth of his sin. He, he should have seen his failure to love God and to love others. 
uh, and to be a neighbor and, and ask Jesus, what, what does he have to do? How can he be justified? How can he be forgiven? And the point of that story is, is driven home by the silence at the end of the parable as well. What, what the lawyer didn't say in response to Jesus uh, after verse 37 Go and do the same, Jesus says. The same as what he's just described. If, if the lawyer was interested in learning from Jesus and receiving grace from him, he should have fallen to Jesus' feet at, the, at that point and said, Lord, I, I have not loved like this. I do not have that kind of love. Uh, forgive me. Uh, save me. He, he came to Jesus claiming to be justified. Uh, in other words, claiming not to need what Jesus is offering uh, in his ministry. Uh, one, one commentator summarizes this way, if eternal life, if eternal life is achieved based on the performance of love, Jesus' parable has eliminated that possibility for the lawyer. And, and I think this, this story ought to do the same for us. Again, it doesn't first give us a practical example of just being nice or loving other people. It exposes our lack of love. Right? It, it shows us the holiness of the love of God that we fall so far short of. Um, and, it, and it ought to drive us to him for forgiveness, for grace. Think about it. I, I think it's safe to say that none of us here this morning, none of us in this room has ever loved in the way that's portrayed in this parable. Maybe we haven't thought about it in that, that depth before because we just maybe tend to think of it as just you know, being nice, seeing someone, you know, seeing someone in need and offering some help. I think we're intended to see that none of us has ever loved in that way. And, and if we bristle at that suggestion and we think of all the sacrifices we've made and how much we've loved other people, then maybe we're feeling the point of the parable. It's exposing our pride and our, our self-justification. We, we tend to think, well, I'm not like that cold-hearted priest or the cold-hearted Levite. In this story, I must be identified with the Samaritan. I must be like him in the story. And, and of course, most of us have shown sacrificial love. Sleepless nights and financial expense and emotional costs and lots of time spent and so on for, for others. But for people that we know and love. Right, for people that we know and love. But again, this is a picture of extraordinary, willing, immediate love that puts him in serious danger for, for an outright enemy. Uh, one, one commentator calls it reckless love that's pictured here. He puts himself in danger for someone he doesn't know, someone he's supposed to hate. He writes a blank check for his recovery. I think it's possible most of us every day drive past needy people and don't offer any help because we know it will be too costly. It will be too time consuming. It's too complicated. Right. Their problems are too big. And there are other people that can help. There are other places they can go. Right. Justifications along the lines of what the priest of the Levite probably had. And we justify that to ourselves. So fourthly, on your outline, I just want to consider application a little bit further. Back to the initial interaction, the motives of this lawyer. How about you? How do you respond to God's law, to God's requirements, to his character, his call to love? Uh, do you skim over it or 
treat it lightly or reshape it so that you feel that you're right with God, you fit it into your life? Uh, Are you limiting or softening the holiness of, of God, the good requirements of God to justify yourself? You know, surely God understands why I'm so angry in this case. This is ridiculous. Right? Surely God doesn't expect me to love my spouse when she acts like that. Right? Of course, I had to tell those lies. The consequence of doing that is, is to the degree that you try to fit God's law into your life as it is, instead of vice versa, you, you fail to see your need for Jesus. Right? You've, you've shrunken the needed grace of Jesus. We do to Jesus really what's been done often to this parable here. Right? The parable is turned into just a nice moral lesson. Be nice to other people. Be helpful. Right? Jesus has turned into just a moral teacher. Right? He's giving good sort of guru suggestions, lifestyle suggestions. Rather than this parable being seen as a lesson about life and death, about justification, damnation, uh, Jesus is, is seen as a teacher rather than a savior. Uh, when, when confronted by God's holy word, do you see yourself as the person described in Ezekiel 16 that we read as well to begin? That, that utterly helpless baby girl who was unwanted and thrown out in a field to die. Right? That was God's picture of basically our contribution to our salvation, right? And our, the depth of our need. Um, we don't need just a, a helping hand from the Lord, right? We need an absolute rescue. Do you understand what God's done for you, as is described there in Ezekiel 16, for that baby girl? Uh, the, the man, picturing God, uh, takes her in, cleans her, and clothes her, and feeds her, and, and ultimately, really adopts her as his daughter and makes her a princess. That's what happens in that story. She becomes a princess. And and if you continue to read that chapter, read the rest of it later, it it actually turns tragic very quickly. The princess uh, forgets where she came from, forgets the father's rescue, uh, who she was, and she rejects him and abandons him. Somewhat like how she was abandoned. Uh, her life should have been lived out in gratitude and, and, and love towards the Father. Uh, but this parable functions also not only to show you how far you fall short, but to point you to the lavish and reckless love of God for you. Um, that love is only reflected ultimately in God. That, that love that you don't live up to is the love of God for you in this parable. Uh, Augustine and other ancient uh, theologians uh, typically interpreted this parable as an analogy for Jesus himself. So the Samaritan was seen as a a figure, a symbol for Jesus. And uh, whether Jesus intends it directly to be seen that that way or not, uh, Jesus is the uh, supreme example of love. Of love for neighbor, and, not, and, and love for neighbor in the sense of for, for a desperately needy enemy. Right? His, it's his loving work alone that can justify you. And, and we are as helpless and desperate as the man who is half dead on the side of the road. Um, Jesus' loving rescue of us from the depth 
Uh, the, the death and the punishment we deserve is, is every bit as extensive and unexpected and lavish. In fact, it's infinitely more costly than what's pictured in this parable. Uh, Phil Riken comments on that comparison. He says it cost him, Jesus, the sufferings of earth, the blood of his body, and the agonies of his soul on the cross. Jesus traveled as much, a much greater distance to help people in much greater need at much greater cost. He is equally committed to seeing our salvation through to the end, for he has promised to come back and carry us all the way to glory. It's all, it's, and so if it, it pictures God's love as well, it's also not inappropriate then to consider how we're reflecting that love uh, in, in gratitude to God uh, towards others. And, and that's um, not going to be our focus, uh, hasn't been our focus this morning, but I, I, there was a... A famous experiment done at Princeton Seminary, at Princeton Seminary a number of years ago. They signed up a bunch of students for this this study of sort of a, I don't know, psychosocial experiment or, or study. Um, for they, they signed them up for a special assignment. I don't know if they offered extra credit or candy or what, but um, each student was assigned to a different day. So they were only, only doing this study on one student per day. And uh, they got to seminary early that day, and every one of them got the assignment to do a three- to five-minute speech, just a, a short speech on the pastorate as vocation, so just various um, aspects of the pastorate. Um, <clears throat> half of them, half of the students in this study, were told to incorporate the story of the Good Samaritan in their speech. And they were given time that, so they came in early, they were given an assignment, given time throughout the day to, to prepare this speech across campus, and then they would come back later uh, to give this speech for a panel. Uh, well, a third of them were given plenty of time, they were given all day, as much time as they needed um, uh, before they gave their speech. Another third of them were uh, told suddenly that, that the time was running short, that they needed to wrap up pretty soon. Uh, and get across campus to, to give their speech. They were hurried a little bit. Uh, and then the other third uh, were told that they, they were suddenly told that they lost track of time, they were running late, the panel's been waiting for them, and they've got to hurry across campus right now and give their speech. Okay? So you have those three groups. And, and so each student on his way to make the speech, uh, half of them, again, with the story of the Good Samaritan uh, on their mind, um, passes someone, maybe you can see where this is going, uh, passes someone who's in on the study who's slumped over moaning in a doorway that they have to walk through. Um, and, and of course, they, they kept statistics, this is the whole point, on, on who stopped to help. And uh, far fewer, maybe unsurprisingly, far fewer of the hurried students helped. Only 10% of those who were in some hurry stopped to help. They, they just stepped over this person. Um, Still, only 60% of the unhurried students stopped to help, the students who didn't have any sense that they were in a hurry. But the, the, the most striking and, and sad part of the statistic is there was no statistical difference between those who had just been studying the story of the Good Samaritan and those who had not been, uh, who, who stopped to help. And I, I think that this is not the, the conclusion drawn from the, the study, but I think maybe it goes to show that Yes, this parable is an example of, of love uh, and sacrifice to imitate, but it simply doesn't work simply as an example 
uh, of kindness. If it's just a moral lesson, if it's just a fable, right? You have to be humbled and amazed and moved by the lavish love of God that it shows, the, the reminder that it gives of how far we fall short, how much grace we need because we lack so much love uh, to be challenged by the parable, which, which was the point of the parable to the lawyer. And maybe it's telling this experiment was done in a completely spiritually dead seminary, uh, which, which is not an exaggeration. Princeton no longer believes or teaches the gospel uh, at all. Uh, and, and so we might hope that those statistics would look very different, uh, maybe among us or among any, anyone who uh, is, is really hearing uh, and, and listening for the gospel. But just as we close, I just want to remind you as well that the, the priests and the Levites were coming from Jerusalem. They were coming from worship uh, where they were confronted. They should have been confronted by the glory of God and his presence at the temple by their, their sin and his rescue of them and the sacrifices there and the daily reading and teaching of the word of their good God. And yet on their way returning from that, it, it proved utterly worthless in their lives uh, when they came upon someone in need. And so my prayer this morning is that every time you and I encounter God's word, uh, that we would be humbled and changed, not, not necessarily in some great dramatic way each time, but uh, really uh, that we would leave worship or time of prayer, or whatever it is, eager to sacrificially love, having just worshiped the God who rescued uh, you from um, the side of the road, as it were. Uh, let's let's pray together. Father, we thank you again this morning for uh, your word. Uh, we thank you for the uh, the picture of your uh, incredible and costly and unexpected, really uh, inexplainable love for us. Uh, we thank you how you you have shown us uh, graciously that we fall short of that and. Uh, that we need it. We need that grace from you. Uh, we do pray also that you would uh, help us to reflect on that and to reflect it in our lives uh, to others today and throughout this week. And we pray all this uh, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.